Tonight's talk is about happiness and the greatest happiness. When I was a child, after my parents gave up on organized religion, they attempted to give us some kind of religious education after dinner every night when we would pick sayings from a little book and discuss them. And one of these books was called Happiness Is. So when it was my turn to pick a phrase, I almost always chose the same one. And the phrase was, happiness is a thing to be practiced, like the violin. Now, I like to think that I may have chosen it, but um, I also played the violin, so <laughs> it's possible I chose it for that reason. The Vietnamese monk, Thich Nhat Hanh, says repeatedly, Water the seeds of happiness and joy within you. So here we are, watering those seeds, practicing happiness. I know it doesn't always seem that way. I've been here a while. But by the end of the talk, I hope that you'll understand what I mean by that. The Buddha proclaimed that the whole of his teaching was about suffering and the end of suffering. We could just as easily say, however, that the Buddha's teachings are about happiness. So we've set up this lab here at IMS to look at our minds and try to find out what causes us suffering and what causes us happiness. It's a universal thing among humans that most of us want to be happy, but I think it's one of the most misunderstood issues in the world. And the Buddha also saw this. After he attained enlightenment, he saw that most people in this world don't know what brings happiness and what causes suffering. So we're here figuring out this very central issue in our lives. The Buddha talked about many kinds of happiness in his teachings. He mentioned often the bliss of nibbana, letting go of the burden of suffering, the indescribable peace of the unconditioned. He also talked often about the happiness of the Brahma Viharas, called the divine abodes because there's such a heavenly place to be. So he discussed the radiance and lightness of a mind filled with loving kindness compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. In one sutra I came across about a year ago, he listed four kinds of happiness for the householder. These surprised me. The Buddha said, Householder, there are four kinds of bliss to be won by the householder. The bliss of ownership, the bliss of wealth, the bliss of debtlessness, and the bliss of blamelessness. Very interesting. He does go on uh, to talk in depth about the bliss of ownership and the bliss of wealth and you know, uh, uh, possessions properly attained and properly used and properly shared. So he did give some qualifications to those two, which surprised me and perhaps surprised some of you. The bliss of blamelessness that he mentions is this happiness that's available 
when we lead a life of integrity and sila, morality. So many times he talks in his teachings about this basic foundation of spiritual life and how much happiness it brings us to live in a way that we don't bring remorse and regret into our lives and the freedom that we feel when we live in that way. But tonight I want to talk about two other kinds of happiness that the Buddha addressed and that we're cultivating directly here in our meditation. The grosser of these two types of happiness and the type of happiness that most people in the world seek is the happiness associated with sense pleasures. We see the beautiful autumn leaves and we feel happy. Or we drink a warm cup of tea on a cool afternoon and the pleasure produces a sense of happiness in our minds. We feel a warm breeze on our face and again, there's a lightness and a happiness in our minds. This kind of happiness is readily available if we just pay attention. In many moments of our day, we can nourish this happiness within us if we're present to the beauty and the pleasure in this world. Thich Nhat Hanh again says, happiness is available, please help yourself to it. One way we can help ourselves to happiness is to be open to the beauty and the pleasure in life. Life isn't always so easy, and we all know that a meditation retreat certainly isn't always easy. So pleasant sense experiences can help soften the mind a bit and help balance times of great difficulty. The Buddha said that the human birth was the right mix of happiness and suffering to encourage spiritual practice. He said that the heavenly realms were too pleasant and people weren't interested in practicing, people, beings, shall we say, <laughs> weren't interested in practicing. And the hell realms, there's too much suffering so you can't get your head above water for practice. We find this balance within the human realm too. Times when we're very, very happy, like when we're in love, or some such experience, we don't think that much about practice. And then times when there's intense suffering, like intense depression, it's hard to get our heads above water to get um, to, to do the practice. Enjoying the happiness of sense pleasures can help lighten us when we're in these very difficult times and give us more energy for practice. Kind of balances the suffering happiness so that we're again in the uh, area where we're able to do the practice and benefit from it. So meditation helps us access this type of happiness by training us to be present now, by teaching us to connect to our senses. So in meditation we bring our minds and our awareness back to the present moment over and over again through the sense doors of hearing, seeing, feeling, smelling, tasting. It's somewhat of a lost art. <laughs> we live in a world that is uh, 
For most of us, there's a lot of stimulation, too much stimulation. And because of that, many of us shut down and dull our senses and lose the ability to appreciate subtlety in the senses. I was reading um, a magazine a couple days ago, the Utni Reader, and there was a whole article about connecting with the senses and about how in Western culture we've become very dissociated from our senses and disconnected from our physical bodies. And there was one study that was done in Germany. Apparently 20 years ago, the average adult could hear 300,000 sounds. I don't know how they determined that. <laughs> Afterwards, I asked myself. That was 300,000, and apparently now the average adult hears 180,000 sounds. So a lot's been lost. And apparently um, children that are growing up now in Germany can hear 100,000 sounds. So there's been some dulling of the senses, some um, loss of un appreciating or even being able to connect with subtlety. And when we are dissociated from our senses in this way, we lose our ability to see reality clearly. And so meditation is about coming back to reality through the sense doors. As we are present a greater percentage of the time, we see that meditation opens up our senses, that they become more refined, and we notice subtlety more. Rice, which most people think just tastes like rice, we start to appreciate that it has many different tones of sweetness and nuttiness and many different flavors in one bite of rice or the sound of a bell ringing, which again, most people would just say, well, that's just a bell ringing. But we all know that a bell ringing has many different tones that change and blend and, and uh, grow and diminish as the bell is putting out its sound. Or even a day like today, with the light, that clarity of the light, the richness of the light, in what I'm calling a November day. It feels like a November day. Now, just really being able to appreciate that because our senses are more open and we're more connected through the sense doors. And we really start to understand this way, the simplicity of, of sense happiness. We live in a culture where uh, sense happiness is usually associated with um, much stimulation. And here we learn to appreciate very subtle stimulation. I remember times on my first three-month course here when I, would, I was washing dishes back in the dishroom and it was winter and the sun would be coming in through the snow and there'd be a couple chickadees out there and I would just cry. I was so happy. It was so simple but so beautiful. Another uh, Thich Nhat Hanh favorite of mine is he says that we can also learn to appreciate the absence of sense suffering as a kind of happiness. He talks about the happiness of a non-toothache. <laughs> we only realize how nice it is not to have a toothache when we have one. So he says we can start appreciating how nice it is to not have a toothache all the time. <laughs> and how nice it is to have two legs that walk and to have good food 
all the things that we take for granted in life. And I think meditation also helps us to appreciate this level of comfort and pleasure. Many people in the world, especially in our consumer-oriented society, think of happiness on this very basic level of acquiring more pleasant sense sense experiences or more things that will bring us pleasant sense experiences, and they look no further. In our consumerist culture, we even think of happiness as something to acquire, another thing to get, like it's out there somewhere in the future. A friend sent me a postcard recently which shows us beautifully there's four frames in the, fo- in the postcard. In the first frame, there's a big sign, and it says, happiness just around the corner, work harder. And there's a bunch of rats that are running through this maze. Frame two, happiness just around the corner, earn more money. And the rats are going crazy in the maze. Frame three, happiness just around the corner, buy more things. And the rats are running frenzied. Frame four, happiness just around the corner, keep going, and the rats run on. Sometimes we live this way as if if we just had more of something, we could find that magical happiness around the corner. So we often think of happiness as accumulating more of these pleasant sense moments. If it were true that more pleasant sense moments made us happier, Westerners should be the happiest people in the world because we have the most comfortable standard of living. But we're not. (laughs) At least that's been my experience. The NPR did a report a while ago, and they were trying to see if people got happier as their income went up, as their standard of living went up. They did over like a 10-year period, and they found that they didn't get happier. The Buddha did recognize that things and experiences, pleasant things, pleasant experiences, can bring us some level of happiness. They can bring us some joy and some comfort. But, (laughs) here's the big but, (laughs) sense pleasures as a source of happiness have a couple of limitations and dangers. First of all, we can start to depend on sense pleasures for happiness and feel like we need them to feel happy. And then we've become addicts to pleasantness. We've become addicted to pleasant sense experiences, and then we're not free. We're enslaved. We have to have our pleasant sense hit to be happy. And so we spend our energy looking for that next sense hit. And then we're very bound to this search And it's a very restless kind of search. It's a contracted search, a search with the contraction of wanting. And so there's no consistent peace on this road. Second, depending on sense pleasures for our happiness doesn't even work as a strategy for happiness because sense pleasure is ultimately unreliable. One of the basic truths of life and the core teachings of the Buddha that you've heard 
here is that conditions in this world are constantly changing. The truth of anicca, impermanence. So what is here now is gone in the next moment. So we may feel pleasantness and some corresponding happiness, but it doesn't last. And so then we're off searching for our next fix. It's like when I finished a nice lunch today and then I wanted a cookie. <laughs> just keeps going. And the other kind of major problem here is what about when we experience unpleasantness, which we inevitably will. Sometimes life just isn't pleasant. Sometimes it's downright unpleasant. And are we then condemned to unhappiness during these times? Even the Rolling Stones knew that you can't always get what you want. So if we rely on sense pleasure, pleasure, sense pleasantness to be the source of our happiness, then we are sentencing ourselves to unhappiness whenever conditions are unpleasant. So pretty unreliable as a source of happiness. This dependence on sense pleasures also leaves us um, quite vulnerable to the vicissitudes of life, to the ups and downs of life. It reminded me of uh, when I was in Argentina visiting a friend a couple years ago. And she lives in the mountains, and the weather changes all the time. And so I'd wake up in the morning, I'd look out and say, wow, it's sunny, great, okay, well, we're going to have a good day today. We're going to get to do some hiking. It's going to be really nice. And then I'd be happy. <laughs> And then an hour later, <laughs> it would be all cloudy, and I'm oh, it's going to rain. We can't do anything today. And I kind of feel a little unhappy. <laughs> and then two hours later, it would clear up again. And I just noticed how, you know, it was up and down, depending on, my, uh, on what the weather was doing. And because I was depending on that as a source of my happiness for the day, it just illustrates how vulnerable we are if we're depending on things to be the way we want them to, to be, things being pleasant, um, that we're very vulnerable to the ups and downs of life. It's like a roller coaster. And because of that, we try all kinds of ways to control life. The basic ways we try to control life are through desire and aversion. So we create these walls in our minds and in our lives, what's acceptable, what's not. I'll experience this, but I won't experience that. This is okay, but that's not. It's not on the thought level. It's on this deep conditioning level that we try to make. Um, we try to make it all work out so that we don't feel so vulnerable and we get the pleasantness that makes us happy. So we really try to control the flow of life when we're depending on sense pleasures for happiness. When we try to control the world this way, when we live lost in desire and aversion, our hearts are not open to life. This is our human predicament. We can have open hearts that embrace all of life, the sorrow and the joy, or we have closed hearts that contract in desire and aversion. So we know, all of us know that everything changes. Most of us think this is pretty obvious. But we need to understand and see this very deeply if we're going to have peace of mind in this world. 
as long as we don't see clearly this truth of impermanence, we're going to believe on some level that we can control life and find happiness by increasing pleasant experiences and decreasing unpleasant experiences by these strategies of desire and aversion. In some ways we have to see how out of control life is. That's part of the change, part of impermanence, that life is pretty out of control, out of our control. Otherwise we think we can hold on. We think we can orchestrate it all. The late Ajahn Chah, um, who you've heard about, meditation master in the Thai forest tradition, describes the state that one lives in when there is an inability to accept the flow of change. He says, it's like the water of a river. It naturally flows down the gradient. It never flows against it. That's its nature. If a person was to go and stand on a river bank and seeing the water flowing swiftly down its course, foolishly want it to flow back up the gradient, he would suffer. Whatever he or she was doing, this wrong thinking would allow no peace of mind. He would be unhappy because of his wrong view, thinking against the stream. If he had right view, he would see that the water must inevitably flow down the gradient, and until he realized and accepted this fact, the man would be agitated and upset. That's not peace. That's the agitation that comes when we don't understand and live with life how it is. So happiness and sense pleasures, although it can provide us some comfort and solace, it can't be an ultimate refuge for us. Sense pleasures are a source of happiness, but they're unreliable because conditions change. I have a poem by Pablo Neruda, and this poem describes connecting with the world through the senses, but understanding that it will change. He writes, We, the mortals, touch the metals, the wind, the ocean shores, the stones, knowing they will go on, inert or burning. And I was discovering, naming all these things, it was my destiny to love and say goodbye. So fully experiencing the world through the senses, but understanding that none of it can be held on to, that we must say goodbye over and over. kind of subcategory of sense pleasures is um, peaceful meditative states. We love these meditations when our minds are clearer and quieter. And as we practice more, we can develop more concentration, can accept, access, access this kind of happiness of an unperturbed, quiet mind. And the Buddha described in great detail the many kinds of pleasant mind states we can access through meditation. You may have tasted for a moment or two some of them yourself. 
So he talked about the happiness of renunciation and the mind turning away from sense pleasures. There's the happiness of seclusion when the mind is free of turbulence, the happiness of concentration, which can be rich with rapture and joy, the refined happiness of sukha that Guy mentioned the other day a little bit, less thrilling and more comfortable. However, there's also dangers or limitations with this kind of happiness. We can get stuck in these pleasant meditation spaces and think that they are the goal of our meditation. And we can become attached to them just the same as sense pleasures. We try to remember that the end goal of meditation is wisdom, learning how to be happy under any conditions. And the truth is we often gain more wisdom when we're clearly looking at our suffering, not when we're floating around in bliss. Our meditation is more useful when we learn to deal with our anger, our pain, our sadness, our desire, whatever blocks the spaciousness of our mind. So concentrated meditation states, they can be useful in developing wisdom, but again, they're dangerous if we get attached to them and cling to them as our source of happiness. Another limitation with concentrated meditative states is that they aren't so easy to develop and they change quite quickly. They're as impermanent as sense pleasures. The first time I meditated, I only lasted for five minutes until I decided that meditation was impossible. Uh, my mind was all over the place. Then I signed up for the three-month course. I must have known that we need this, these kind of conditions to develop concentration. We need quiet and minimal distraction and um, yeah, ceaseless meditation. So concentration takes time to develop, and it also varies greatly day to day. Those of you who have called home or written notes to others have seen how easily concentrated states are influenced, how fickle they can be. I remember my first three-month course here. I had to go to the doctor sometime in November, and they played exactly two songs on the radio while I was in the waiting room. And I can still tell you what they are, <laughs> but I won't, <laughs> because they were two pop songs that weren't exactly <laughs> pleasant to have going through my mind for the next week. <laughs> That's how fickle concentration is. It doesn't take much to disturb it. Not dependable as a source of happiness. That's actually why the Buddha went on to meditate. Um, at the time that he was practicing in India, um, concentration meditation was uh, considered the pinnacle of, of um, spiritual attainment. And he said, that's just not enough. And that's why he kept looking. So if the happiness of sense pleasure, the happiness of concentrated meditative states, if these aren't dependable, what's a more dependable kind of happiness. The Buddha taught that the highest kind of worldly happiness that we can experience is the happiness of equanimity, the happiness of a mind that is balanced and at peace, 
a mind that can accept the pleasantness and unpleasantness of life without reaction. So the greatest type of worldly happiness that we can experience is this happiness of a peaceful mind. As we meditate more, we discover that joy and happiness, as we conventionally think of them, are actually somewhat gross and heavy in texture. And we begin to see that a mind at peace, an equanimous mind, is actually the happiest kind of mind. Why is an equanimous mind the happiest, or the highest kind of worldly happiness? Primarily this is so because the equanimous mind is not dependent on conditions for it to be happy. It's an unbound mind, a free mind, free of our addiction to pleasure. The happiness of sense pleasures and the happiness of meditative states are dependent on pleasant conditions and these conditions inevitably change. But the equanimous mind does not depend on conditions being a certain way to be happy. So it no longer needs to control the mind. It can rest. It can be at peace. It doesn't look for happiness in mundane experiences and consequently finds it. Some of you might know this story um, of a monk in Thailand many years ago who drew a picture of a happy, smiling Buddha on the wall of his meditation cave and wrote under it, O joy to discover there is no happiness in this world. Oh, joy to discover there's no happiness in this world. What did he mean? Perhaps what he meant is that by accepting that nothing in this world could make him permanently happy, he quit trying to find happiness, and so he found peace, or equanimity, the highest kind of happiness, the happiness of a mind at rest. So paradoxically, he found happiness by accepting that it is impossible to find. When we meditate, it becomes um, pretty obvious, especially at the beginning, that our minds are a bit like a roller coaster, up and down, back and forth, pretty crazy, monkey mind. There's actually some order to all this chaos, however. It's the basic theme of grasping at pleasantness and avoiding unpleasantness. Basically how our minds are conditioned. So something pleasant comes along, and as you all know, we try to hold on to it. And unpleasantness comes along, we say, no thank you, (laughs) goodbye, we don't want it. So our minds are constantly grasping and pushing away, filtering all of our experience, trying to control everything. And we take this as our refuge. But the quantumist mind doesn't react to conditions of pleasant or unpleasantness in these habitual ways and takes acceptance as its refuge, accepting things as they are. Peaceful mind. I remember one period I went through in meditation where my mind was very busy trying to determine what would make me happy the rest of my life. Figured we needed to plan the long term. And um, it just went through scenario after scenario. Um, First I was going to have a little hut in the mountains and meditate and I was going to be happy. Then I thought, no, I'll probably get lonely if I do that. And I was going to live in a community and then I thought, no, people drive me crazy. 
I'm, I'm going to burst this pipe. So. And then, you know, well, maybe I'll get married and have some kids. Oh, that's so much responsibility. And, and I just, you know, the mind just went on. This went on for days. You know, some of it was at this kind of conscious level, and some of it was just at this grasping level of just looking, 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 what was going to make me happy. There had to be something, some refuge there. And it was a very difficult time of practice and also very frightening. I remember I would wake up every morning and my first note would be fear. And frightening because I wasn't finding this happiness that I was looking for. And finally, after about a month of this, I went into uh, an interview with Sharon, who was my teacher at the time, and I said to her, there's nothing out there that's going to make me permanently happy. She said, yep. <laughs> and I said, so I guess my job is to learn to be okay with life as it is. She said, yep. <laughs> and that very afternoon, the fear went away. And my meditations became quite calm. It's a little bit like that monk in Thailand that I gave up. I finally gave up looking for some solution to this happiness problem by trying to find something worldly that was going to be stable and do it for me. And I finally started looking for happiness in the place where we can find it. That's in acceptance of life as it is. So we're all developing equanimity here. You are strengthening every day, every meditation period, this muscle of equanimity. I know it doesn't always seem that way. And the reason why it doesn't always seem that way is because we strengthen the muscle of equanimity. We develop equanimity by looking at our reactivity with mindfulness. So we develop equanimity by exploring desire and aversion as they arise in response to the conditions of life. So we notice when we're clinging to pleasantness, when we're caught in a fantasy, we can't let it go. Or we notice when we're craving that nice sitting that we had yesterday. Or we notice when we experience aversion in the face of unpleasantness, we notice when our back aches and we can't be with it. Or when the backhoe starts, and it's, in our opinion, ruining our meditation. So we go in and we explore this craving and desire. We explore aversion. We become very intimate with our own reactivity. I'm sure all of you here know desire and aversion fairly well by now. And this is how we develop equanimity. We start to be with our desire and aversion with mindfulness. So recognizing it, accepting it, looking at it deeply and with wisdom. And after a while, we start to see that we don't have to identify with our reactivity our desire and aversion, we start to see that it arises because of conditions and passes on when conditions change. We start not taking them so personally. And they start to become more transparent. We start to be able to see through them. They don't seduce us so much anymore. 
So paradoxically, we become equanimous with our reactive mind, and then it loses some of its power over us. I want to read a story that describes a mind that is um, pretty equanimous with desire. This is a Dalai Lama story from Sharon's book, A Heart as White as the World. At a Buddhist Christian conference I attended at Gethsemane Monastery in Kentucky, His Holiness the Dalai Lama was speaking about the tour of the monastery he had been given earlier that day. He began by saying that he was quite impressed that the monastery was able to support itself through the manufacture of cheeses and food cakes. Then, in the midst of this formal presentation, the television cameras rolling, the Dalai Lama said, I was presented with a piece of homemade cheese, which was very good, but I really wanted some cake. He laughed uproariously and repeated, it was so unfortunate, really I was hoping someone would offer me some cake, but no one did. (laughs) Can't you just see him doing that? (laughs) I mean, that innocence, you know? His childlike candor was wonderful with nothing manipulative about it. Clearly, he could be quite happy without a piece of fruitcake, and some part of his state of happiness was the very ability to laugh at his desire for cake as well as being able to speak about it unabashedly before dignitaries of two religions and a television audience. We can learn to relate to our desire and aversion that way, with lightness, (laughs) not taking it personally, not identifying with it. So we're sitting here cultivating moments of equanimity. Moments, moments. And we develop more and more of these moments by seeing through the stories of our desire and aversion, by not always believing they're enticing stories. So related to this is working with feeling tone, the second foundation of mindfulness. I remember one time when I was sitting in this very hall, and um, I work a lot with sound and meditation. Well, I work a lot with aversion to sound and meditation, being an aversive type. And um, there was one time I was meditating here, and this lawnmower was going. It wasn't the first time the lawnmower was going. And I was experiencing quite a bit of aversion. So I did what good meditators do. I noticed the unpleasantness of the lawnmower sound, and in that moment, the conditions were right, and I just noticed it's only unpleasant. This whole hubaloo in my mind, this whole reactivity of aversion is only because it's unpleasant, and I don't have to follow with aversion. And I was like, oh, okay. It only takes one moment like that for us to see the power powerful, the power of mindfulness and the possibilities for, fe- for peace by being able to notice desire and aversion and also being able to notice how they're conditioned by pleasantness and unpleasantness. I decided that I might be able to be happy even if the lawnmower kept going. And we learn to access this ability through practice. We remember over and over, we work with it, comes up, 
desire comes up, aversion comes up, pleasantness, unpleasantness, by getting in there, seeing it, working with it. We start breaking the, the chain, the automatic pleasant equals grasping, unpleasant equals aversion. We can have some fun in our investigations, too. I remember one time, summer ago, I, I was running down to my garden to get some vegetables, and a yellow jacket bit me. And um, it hurt quite a bit. And I watched my mind just kind of spin out in aversion. And it actually came up with some rather ridiculous stories, like I could actually be in trouble. I'm not allergic to bees or yellow jackets, but somehow it started worrying um, about what was going to happen because this hurt so much and all. And so then I decided, I'm just going to play with this. And so I stopped, and I just went to the bare sensations, throbbing, burning, stinging. And I just noticed that I was fine right there. And then to play with it, I let my mind go. I loosened the mindfulness. And the aversion came in the story about how horrible this was and how much it hurt and how I could be in trouble. And then I reined it in again, went back to the sensations burning, singing, fine. And I just played with it, you know, letting the mindfulness go and watch what would happen and then bring the mindfulness in and watch how, um, how it changed. It's like we can explore in this way. We can uh, watch, watch our conditioning. Watch what happens when we bring mindfulness in. See what we learn. Sometimes when I'm really stuck in something and mindfulness isn't working so well, <laughs> I develop equanimity by using the equanimity, one of the equanimity phrases from the Brahma Vihara meditation. I think this is a modern phrase. Things are as they are. So sometimes when I'm really struggling with desire, aversion, usually aversion, since I'm more of an aversive type, I'll just say, oh, things are as they are. And it just sometimes cuts right through it. It's like, oh, yeah can't control this world. Things are exactly as they are. And my job is just to be as okay as possible with that. It's a great little phrase, things are as they are. Meditation and, and equanimity are about being able to accept deeper and deeper levels of truth with balance. One of the deep truths of life is that we humans are very vulnerable in this world of constant change and that there isn't a lot we can control. So in meditation, we open to this vulnerability and we see how we try to control. And at some point, and we see how we try to control through attachment and aversion, through contraction, and at some point, it's not usually all at once, it's more slowly, we see that the pain of contraction and of a closed heart is worse than opening to this vulnerability and the fact that we can't control the world. So we open to these truths and we develop equanimity together. They go hand in hand. And as we do that, we experience more peace in life. A man named John Bennett describes it this way. He says, You come to see that suffering is required, and you no more want to avoid it than you want to avoid putting your next foot on the ground when you are walking. 
In the spiritual path, joy and suffering follow one another like two feet, and you come to the point of not minding which foot is on the ground. You realize, on the contrary, that it is extremely uncomfortable hopping all the time on the joy foot. A lot of people see in practice, too, that we go through periods of dukkha, and we go through periods of being vulnerable and, and having some struggling going on, and then... Um, it, they alternate with periods of more relative peace and understanding and calmness. It's like, and sometimes we think that these dukkha times are bad practice and, um, you know, that we should get rid of them, that something's wrong. But actually it often means that we're going deeper in practice, that we're opening to a new, um, a deeper understanding of the truth and that we haven't yet assimilated it, that we haven't yet built up the equanimity around it. And so if we stay with it and work with it, then we usually do come to this place where we um, can hold this to whatever it is, and we find peace. And sometimes, you know, then we go to the next level. It takes a lot of courage being willing to do this, to go through this opening process, opening to our vulnerability as humans. Pema Chodron says it's a bit like going through detox. We usually avoid the full poignancy of being human by distracting ourselves. But with meditation, we stop and we just face, we face the vulnerability, we feel it. And we find freedom through acceptance. So we break our addiction. But detox isn't easy. <laughs> So we can't always see the, the growth of our equanimity, but over time it, it often becomes apparent to us, you know. You're here developing equanimity and you might not see day to day how it, how it grows, but over time we can start to see how we react less to, to life, to the ups and downs of life, that we're more willing to let go of the pleasant and that we're more willing to be with the unpleasant, that we struggle less with life that we feel like we flow more with life. Equanimity is, is fairly quiet, so we might not always recognize it at first. It's the absence of desire and aversion, so it's a, it's a quiet kind of energy. Many yogis have reported that they're feeling um, less upset when pleasant conditions leave and that they're more willing to be balanced with unpleasant conditions. This is the development of equanimity. I like to tell a couple of stories, a few examples of equanimity. The first one is the Buddha, from the greater discourse on the lion's roar, when he's talking to Sariputta about some qualities of mind that he has, and he's discussing in this instance, his um, strength of equanimity, he says, I would make my bed in a charnel ground with the bones of the dead or a, for a pillow. And cowherd boys came up and spat on me, urinated on me, threw dirt on me, and poked sticks into my ears. Yet I do not recall I ever aroused an evil mind of hate against them. Such was my abiding in equanimity. One story I like a lot is by Western nun, um, named Tenzin Pormo, who uh, 
was meditating for quite a bit of time in Tibet. And the story that I like in particular is she was doing her three-month, three, uh, three-year, three-month retreat that many Tibetan practitioners do. And according to the rules of the retreat, um, at least in the lineage she was in, she couldn't hear a human voice or uh, see a human person for that entire time or like broke the spell of the retreat and her retreat would be over. And she was um, had this little cave. The name of the book is Cave in the Snow, and she had this little hut cave high up in the mountains. I think it was like 12,000 feet or maybe even higher. And she had this whole schedule of food being dropped off somewhere that she would like every once in a while go pick up her supplies so that she wouldn't have to see this person or hear him. And also in Tibetan tradition, the end of the retreat is like the most powerful time. It's, you know, when you really get the most benefit. So first of all, at one point on a retreat, the food drop-off didn't happen. And the food drop-offs weren't very often. I think it was every three months or every six months. So she went and her food wasn't there. She came back and she rationed all her food and, and um, managed to make it. But the person who was interviewing her for a biography said to her, um, well, did you ever find out why the food wasn't dropped off? And she said, no, I never asked. I figured there must have been a reason. <laughs> I just thought that was, so, that was so equanimous, you know. She didn't even have to know why. And then, like three years into her retreat, so she was at the most powerful time, the government changed, and uh, this bureaucrat heard about her and decided that she hadn't renewed her visa and that she needed to do this. So he went all the way up the mountain to her little hut and knocked on the door and said, hello, hello, come out whatever. And that was the end of her retreat. According to the Tibetans, that's it. It's done. She heard somebody's voice. And um, again, the woman asked her, said, well, you know, how did you feel at that point? You know, here you were way into retreat, the most powerful time, and it just got over. And she said, it was his karma and my karma. That was all she had to say. <laughs> that's an equanimous mind. I want to read a Western, a Western American example that I got out of a book called My Grandfather's Blessings. Many years ago, I cared for a woman called May Thomas. May had grown up in Georgia, and while she had lived in Oakland, California for many years, she had in some profound way never left the holy ground of her childhood. She had worked hard all her life cleaning houses in order to raise seven children and more than a few grandchildren. By the time I met her, she had grown old and was riddled with cancer. May celebrated life. Her laugh was a pure joy. It made you remember how to laugh yourself. All these years later, just thinking of her makes me smile. As she became sicker, I began to call her every few days to check in on her. She would always answer the phone in the same way. I would say, May, how you doing? And she would chuckle and reply, I'm blessed, sister. I am blessed. The night before she died, I called, and her family had brought the phone to her. May, I said, it's Rachel. I could hear her coughing and clearing her throat, looking to find breath enough to speak in a lung filled with cancer, willing herself past the fog of morphine to connect to my voice. Tears stung my eyes. May, I said, it's Rachel. How you doing? There was a sound I could not identify with, which slowly unwrapped itself into a deep chuckle. I'm blessed, Rachel. 
I am blessed, she told me. May was one of those people, and so perhaps are we all. That's equanimity. So the happiness we really yearn for is this mind that is at peace, that feels blessed under any circumstances. And we acquire this kind of mind by deeply understanding the nature of reality, by deeply understanding that all things change, by deeply understanding the futility of grasping and aversion. As our mind understands more deeply, it learns to accept change and flow with life. And then there is peace, this refined kind of happiness that's not dependent on any particular circumstance, any particular condition. We learn to flow more with life. It isn't a one-day fix. You're still here, so you must know that. We humans are much slower than that. But over time, we develop this ability to be less reactive and more accepting of life's circumstances. This is a very dependable kind of happiness. This is a happiness where we can take refuge. I'd like to end with a poem that was read at my first three-month retreat and is very um, applicable to this theme of equanimity. It's the um, ending of George P. Eliot's Four Quartets. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Through the unknown, remembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. At the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard, in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick, now, here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, when the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crowned knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. Sit for a moment. now, here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity,
costing not less than everything. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.